I'm Prentice Hemphill, and this is Finding Our Way. The future belongs to us, or it could. We're in the undetermined space, with competing visions of the future shaping our reality. Some compel us to sleep, others compel us to engage, to create a future different than our current trajectory. These alternate futures, what we often relegate to science fiction, become possible when we opt not to stick to the script, when we risk and have a hard conversation, or let someone see who we really are, when we interrupt and dismantle logics and structures of separation and harm. What does a more free future look like for you? What would you risk for it? Who would you become in it? And what will we do about the harm between us? This episode is really full of the kinds of questions and vulnerability that are disruptive. It's a trip into the orbit of the brilliant, expansive, and wise Adrian Marie Brown. Adrian is a writer, a pleasure activist, a facilitator, a doula, a podcast host of How to Survive the End of the World with her sister, Autumn Brown, co-host of the new and delicious podcast, Octavia's Parables with Toshi Regan. And she is one of my dearest friends. We have a lot of fun together on this episode, and we're excited to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the conversation. <laughs> I'm like, let's do this. I got my tea. I'm ready to go. Okay, let me get myself together. <clears throat> Pee. You <Unit. laughs> I gotta get serious. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you have all of this. On the podcast, I just want people to understand this is how we operate. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I am so excited to have my friend, the very brilliant, the very wonderful Adrian Marie Brown, on the podcast today. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you, my love. It's good to be here. It's good to be with you. I'm trying to keep it together because Adrian has been making me laugh um, leading up <laughs> to this moment. And I'm trying to, um, yeah. All right. <clears throat> so Adrian, I love you. And I'm so grateful that you're here today. I'm excited for this conversation, a little bit nervous in some ways because of how fun and unruly I think it's going to be to be in this conversation with you. Mm-hmm. but I really want to invite you here because in this podcast what we're trying to do is offer some level of orientation so talking to people who we feel like offer some guiding light some insight into this moment that we find ourselves in and also some kind of possibilities for where and how we might go and when I thought about future dreaming, you really come to the top of the list of people that I really want to be in conversation with and uh, and offer this conversation with. So thank you for being here. Thank you thank for you. saying yes. 
Thank How are you, you feeling for about being this podcast, Prentice? I really do think I feel like I, among others, have been waiting a long time for you to do something like this, where you're one of my favorite people to talk about the future with and the now with. And I've enjoyed what I've heard so far. So I'm really honored to be invited. And I look forward to seeing where we go here. I love that. Thank you. I really do appreciate that. When I think about this moment and the kind of massive shifts that are underway, I was thinking this morning that it feels like almost every potential future is at play. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Absolutely. It's like dystopian police state. Yeah. Yeah. Available. And they're all actually happening (laughs) concurrently, too. Like, this is actually one of my favorite things about doing futurist work and, and about visionary fiction, particularly, is once you have an analysis of the world, you understand that utopias live on top of dystopias. And hmm. in most times, they're, they're concurrent. And it's just a matter of your perspective, your privileges, as to which experience you're having. And right now, it's all happening. You know, there are people who are completely out to lunch and not tuned in and just going about life as if they don't have to adapt. And there are people who are not able to adapt. And there are people who are like figuring out, you know, like how are we going to pay our rent? Like where are we going to go? Where are kids going to be in school? There are people who are imprisoned and entrapped. And Mm -hmm. there's just, it's all concurrently happening right now. And because of technology and social media and the news, we know about it all concurrently happening which is not something I don't think we've ever been prepared for. Like I don't, there was no training. There was no unlocking of additional portions of our brain to handle how much we're expected to know right now. So all of this concurrent suffering and explosions and celebrations and change is running along the same little grooves in our minds. And yeah, it's, it's quite overwhelming. You know, it's such a powerful reframe of that. These things are happening concurrently because in my mind when we talk about organizing work we talk about movement work or we talk about you know any kind of liberation work we're often thinking about a destination which doesn't mean this moment can't become a more free moment a more liberated moment we can't right work towards change but for you to say these things are happening at the same time there are openings and there are deaths there's decay and there's emergence like it's all happening at the same time it's just a really powerful kind of paradigm shift how to think about this moment you know my i am an octavia butler scholar and i've been doing a podcast with toshi regan on octavia's parable series so yes. I'm deep diving into that and one of the things i'm reminded of is that that series like it's so hard to read and there's nothing in it that's not happening right now. <laughs> so it's like, it's so hard to read. There's slavery, there's rape, there's massive loss, there's attacks, there's economic disparities that, that you wouldn't believe. And then every time I read it and I'm, I'm like, oh, this hurts. And then I'm like, and this is happening right now. And like, she didn't imagine beyond what we're dealing with right now. And so what I think is interesting is, how do we be with the suffering that is actually happening right now and with all the possibility that is actually opening and unfolding? Like 
there's a there's a ton to celebrate and our people are responsible for most of it and so there's like a ton to be like wow we're not sitting back in this pandemic we are advancing towards freedom and and also as we advance we there's a lot of grief um, there's a lot that is beyond our control. Like all of that is active. And I don't know if you ever had this feeling, but I used to have this, like, I wish I was born earlier. Like I mm-hmm. missed the 1968 period of, you know, change all mm-hmm. happening and being available. <laughs> and now it's like 1968 times the internet. It's just like a yeah. whole other realm. So it, yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> you know, it's it's so interesting how we compare are kind of the moment that we're in to other moments in time or you know we do the kind of time traveling imagining like what if I were here instead or what if I were there and there are moments kind of in in these last say four or five years six seven years where I thought wow we're really on it really feels like we're on the edge of things and I think yes. it, it really does feel like we're on the edge of things. And then I think, well, my ancestors also felt like, oh, I'm on the edge of this mm-hmm. thing. Like being transported mm-hmm. from your home across the ocean to arrive on completely different landscape and the context that we face yes. and the brutality. You think, wow, the world ended. The world ended. And yes. I sit at the edge of this moment and I think, but, but. The world's ending, right? This is the this is the edge of it, yeah. right? This is as far as it go it goes, um, but it can be both kind of grounding and unsettling to do that time traveling experiment. I find. Well, and I think one of the things that is really different, like if we think back to our ancestors who were the beginning of enslaved peoples, I think one of the things that's really different is that our assumption is that they were living inside of lives that they loved or inside of cultures that they had co-created and that they felt powerful inside of. Um, But for me, I'm sitting inside of this moment. Like there's very little about this culture that I want to keep or fight for almost everything about it. I want to radically change. And at the same time, I don't want us to be grieving. I don't want to feel like I can't protect my parents and my family I don't want to feel like my my nibblings can't be safe, but I want this nation to completely come apart at the seams and have to change. And I think that the that difference can't be under undervalued, right? That's like it's a terrifying time that we are not in control of, but we need the changes that are unfolding right now, many of them to happen. We need the unveiling of leadership that doesn't care about us. We need movements that are willing to say we will practice a new way of being. Like, we need all of this to happen. And so, you know, I think about that. I'm like, no one is snatching me out of the night here, you know, and no one is snatching me out of any kind of utopia. Like, it's it's just like a crappy situation is unfolding and it's up to us if it actually gets better or not. That piece, it's up to us whether or not it gets better or not, feels like, you know, that's, that's, um, it's such a call forward. And, you know, I was watching the uprisings, you know, being close and connected to people who are 
leading a lot of things um, that were happening around the country. And I was thinking about how it actually feels like for the last at least few years, there's almost been a kind of shock that a lot of us have been in. I mean, a lot of us have been organizing and doing work for a long time and continue to organize. But there was a little bit of like, wait, what? (laughs) What? What's happening? And this shift happened or was always happening around like, oh, no, we actually have to make this. We have to create this. We have to risk for this in this moment. Um, And I'm not even sure how that switch got turned on for so many people, but it it felt like a big moment of collective activation, Mm -hmm. even for folks beyond what we consider being involved in movement. I don't don't know if you felt Mm -hmm. that same kind of activation happen. Absolutely. I think there's an experience. So coming up for me, learning, getting politicized and coming into space that was like, oh, I'm in movement now and I will spend my life in movement. I think that my orientation was very demand-based. And what I got taught to do was to make demands, to take direct actions, to make those demands louder. Um, But it was very much like the power is still in someone else's hands, and I am making a demand on power to change. Mm -hmm. And what I feel shifted was, particularly with the election of Trump, was these people are so reckless that demanding anything from them doesn't even make sense. Like they're, they're willing to put us in such a precarious state, not just as black people. You know, I think the other thing that's happened is that inevitable awakening of all people that it's mm-hmm. like what's happening to black people, what's happening to indigenous people, what's happening to immigrant people is just a foreshadowing of what will happen to anyone who is not in the seat of power, who's not a billionaire, who's not, right? Because those systems continuously have to take from everyone and they'll take from anyone. And I feel like a lot of people are awakening to that. So this moment came where it was like, we can't trust these people. We can't demand things from these people. They're not reasonable. They're not community or or species oriented. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many people, I think indigenous people have known that for a long time, that, We have to hold on to our own sovereign capacity to make decisions. But I think for Black people, for Black organizers especially, there was a moment of pivoting. Like, oh, we're not going to keep making these demands. We're going to start to really shut things down and then claim our own. I think that's how you end up with what's happening in Minnesota, where it's like, we're not asking you as police to get better. We don't trust that that's in your playbook. What we are going to say instead is we want to defund the police. And I really appreciated recently Miriam Kaba, who I think is one of our great, brilliant leaders in yes, this moment. Yes, absolutely. Um, incredible abolitionist thinker. One of the things she spoke on was how we are 250 years into this experiment of carceral justice and into this experiment of society being structured this way. And it has not worked. <laughs> you know, it has not actually reduced harm. It hasn't led to, you know, people feeling safer or more at peace. And I think that's on a large scale. We can blow that out. It's like white people, y'all have had gazillion years. Men, you've had a gazillion years. It hasn't worked. We're no longer mm-hmm. trusting you to improve. So if you improve, it'll mean you get a chance to go into the future with us, but we're going now. Mm-hmm. We're going. And 
and we're going in a million different ways too. You know, I, I keep being struck by how non-monolithic we are and mm-hmm. trying to feel interested in that instead of scared about it. <laughs> um, right. But we are going. Mm. Mm. Peace. <laughs> I, I just want to, yeah, no, it, it feels great. It feels uh, like enlivening to me. And um, there's that one piece that I just want to underscore around being able to call it, being able to make an assessment, yeah. being like, oh, we tried this. Guess what? It's not working for mm-hmm. life. It's not working for yeah. continued life and existence on this planet. And uh, we're going to now pivot <laughs> away from that. We're yeah. now going to pivot away yeah. from these, um, this insistence, this obsession with hierarchies that mm-hmm. diminish life for other people We're gonna and other beings. We're going to pivot away yeah. from that. And, and just really feeling empowered in some ways to make an assessment and to make that pivot is just yes. so, so critical and important. And then this piece you're talking about around like now that we're pivoting and now that there's so many futures possible in one moment, it's like, how do we, um, how do we decide? How do we turn together? How do we uh, be mm-hmm. in the next phase of the journey together? What will it take for mm-hmm. us to stay together, experiment, yeah. try things that? Yeah, I I will say um, I don't know fully, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, um, but I have a thought that keeps coming to me, which is like, we won't all go together and that's okay, but none of us will go alone and that's mm-hmm. crucial. And mm-hmm. that part, like the distinction feels important to me that like, this is not the time of the individual. So this mm-hmm. is not a time for like, individually getting awesome or brilliant or famous or whatever. And just Mm -hmm. like that, that's enough. It's, it's that. And there's so many different concerns that need to be taken care of that we need to be in communities that are oriented around taking care of similar concerns. And so I think this Mm -hmm. often where I'm like, Oh, you know, I know that disability is a major issue for me. It's something that I'm learning to be in right relationship with as my own body shifts and changes. Mm -hmm. I also can see how it's not a top concern for some of the people that I've thought of myself being in community with. Mm -hmm. And what I notice is I'm like, oh, I don't know that I'm going to wait for them to decide it's a concern or continuously try to be pitching them because Mm -hmm. I need to actually just be able to focus on making sure my needs are met and being in community that wants to do that. And I feel like coronavirus has been kind of an interesting practice ground for that for me that I'm like, um, I have to be able to set my own standards for the boundaries I need to have in my own life. And other people can make different choices if they want to, but I can't wait and try to convince everyone to make the same choices as me. Um, And I can't spend a bunch of time going head to head with people who are like, no, I just am not going to wear a mask or I'm not going to, you know, attend to that. And, and it's not, you know, I'm like, I don't want to see anybody suffer unnecessarily or any of those things. But in terms of where I spend my time, you know, I want to spend my time having those conversations with my family and with my Mm -hmm. loved ones and with those who I think I can actually impact. And because we are in the U.S. experiment, we're so used to everything having to be big and it total and all in, mm, and like everyone has to be right, on the same boat. Right. But I'm like, actually, that's not the truth. You know, the the truth is we are meant to be in smaller units. I think as a species, 
And this is giving us an opportunity to figure out like kind of who are our, who are our people, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. who are the people I know that you and I have some shared experience of like having moved towards like, Oh, where's my family right now? How mm-hmm. is my family? Who is my family right. right now? And mm-hmm. how do I be isolated with my love? How do I be with my family, with my parents? How do I take care of them? How do I also surrender to them being them. Like there's all these negotiations at a very intimate level happening around what does community mean in practice? And I keep having this, I'm like, oh, if we're not going to be in the similar practices, then I can love you. And I quote you all the time that boundaries are the distance at which I can love myself and you simultaneously. I, I'm like, if there, if there was ever a mantra for this moment, to me, that's it. That I'm like, I can love you, but if you want to take a high risk of being out here around maskless people or yep. going to parties or whatever, then my boundary is like, I'm going to love you over there. And that may mean I'm going to grieve you from over here. That's mm. the risk. Mm. But I'm taking it seriously that I also really love my life and being alive And I think it's worthwhile to be alive right now. And all the people that I care about, I think it's worthwhile to protect the miracle of our lives right now. And that's my boundary. And it's, you know, talk about getting to practice consent, talk about getting to practice boundary. And to me, all of that is like how we move towards a future in which we're going to be navigating a lot of different concerns. You know, there are people who are like, we need ventilators. So that's, I'm like, okay, how do we make sure, you know, how are those people navigating their needs? Ventilators, not because of COVID, but just like as a life need regularly. There are people who don't have the physical, the material resources to not be working right now. How are they, you know, I just feel like people yeah. are finding these pods yes. and forming community in new ways and having to have new conversations and the suffering, the most suffering I see is people trying to convince others to be how they are instead of moving towards those who are already aligned and building community there. Oh, it's it's just so good and so rich. And this piece around, maybe I call it discernment in some ways, that this is a, it's almost a period yeah. of discernment that we're in. And I heard you say, so this is not the moment for the, days. it's so good. That word, that word, the yeah. practice of it is mm-hmm. my favorite thing. Um, <clears throat> yeah. But you so mentioned bad. it not being a moment of the individual and yet it is a moment yeah. where we're really in a practice of boundaries. And what I heard you say too, is that we are organizing ourselves around care, what we care about, who yes. we care for. Yes. You know, how we tend to our values that that is organizing us in the collective is care as opposed to yeah. Yeah. you should or you have to or I'm going to expend my energy mm-hmm. to make sure you do. Mm-hmm. Um, that It's a, a, a kind of shift in orientation yeah. is what I'm hearing. I think it's a shift from control to care. And I yes. think that it's a liberating path. So for most of us, capitalism is fundamentally a control mechanism. (laughs) You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to control what you're interested in, who you talk to, what you see, 
I think it's anti-capitalist to move into a care-based way of thinking of each other and thinking of community, but we can't, and I don't know, this may be the wrong thing to say, but I'm trying to also practice that a little bit these days is like, Mm -hmm. what, what do I, what feels true or what feels like big questions for me? But I think it's also like, I can't care deeply for every single person in the same way. Like there's a limit to my capacity and in a given day, I can find myself debilitated if I'm trying to overcare um, where I won't, where nothing will happen and I won't actually give good care to the people I can care for. And so I've been really paying attention to that. Like how much care do I have to give and who needs it? Who can I actually be in contact with and give it to? And how can I make sure that the quality of care is really good rather than that the quantity of care makes sense to someone else who's not with me? (laughs) You know, I'm just like, I can't, I can't follow everything. I can't become an instant expert on everything. Um, you know, I think the 24 hour news cycle tricks us into thinking that we can Mm -hmm. know everything in a way that Mm -hmm. we can't know. And, and then you end up not caring for the people that are right around you. (laughs) And I want to, I'll say that I think I have like a 20 person care limit, um, Mm -hmm. in terms of like intimately, like I can know what's happening in their lives. I can ask good questions and have deep, good conversations and there are more people than that in my life right now. And so I navigate, you know, not everyone gets the same quality of care. And I'm aware of that. But I've started to really pay attention to it, <laughs> you know, especially during the pandemic. I was like, as this started, I was like, oh, snap, like 3 billion people want to have FaceTimes every day. I can't right. do that. Right. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I can't be meaningfully present. I don't want to repeat myself. I want to yeah. have like interesting new genuine conversations and stuff so just got interesting to me right that i'm like it's okay to like love everyone but be able to care for a specific set and to care well for them and i really want to be good you know i've said this for years but i want to be good at loving good at caring yes you know responsible about being able to do what i say i can do that's right and that requires knowing limits you know, you know that I'm the king of boundaries yeah. in many ways. And oh, I think yes. a lot. I love that. <laughs> it's my favorite thing. Um, but I think a lot about. And you know, you've watched boundaries me have to learn boundaries. <laughs> like, uh-huh. Yeah, but I wasn't going to say that on the podcast. So that's true. Yeah, absolutely. No, you, but you, you can say you, that. You've watched me learn boundaries. Like, it's true. I feel like I really, when I met you, I would say I had like. On a scale of 10, I had like 0.5 boundary <laughs> skill set or something. And, you know, not to like, yeah. it's such a Virgo thing to put a number on it, but I, I'm like, <laughs> I just didn't have that. And I thought, I even thought it was wrong or I was doing harm to people by trying to set or hold boundaries that I was really right. like, even wanting boundaries was a harmful thing. And I feel like I've come so far. Oh, um, yes you know, in that journey. And now I feel like I'm able to be like, oh, this is mine and this is yours. This is my work and this is your work. Like, I mean, I think that's when we became work. friends. Yes. You know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, we I feel knew like before each that other. you were kind of like, hey girl, <laughs> stay over there. 
<laughs> you know, but I feel and like my our boundaries friendship were on was not even a possibility. Yeah, no, that's true. Out of 10. But I do feel like, I feel like you and I be, being able to be friends was like necessitated me being able to, to understand also like, I don't need to take boundaries personally. I actually yeah. need to take them as like an offer of intimacy. And that's right. That's, that's right. I feel like now you and I are able to be intimate because we're very honest. Yes. Like I never feel like you're talking to me when you don't want to be and vice versa. <laughs> I never feel like you're giving me something you don't have to give and that's vice right. versa, you know, like, that's right. so then it's, it, it allows me to be all in with you, which I really love. That's right. I really love it too. And I feel like my, yeah. my tenderness and my love gets to come out when I feel like my boundaries are also understood, respected, acknowledged, all those things. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm actually a love bug. And I just want to tell you that I love you all the time. And I want to do yeah, it when so I smushy. can. <laughs> I'm very <laughs> smushy. I, I just think about boundaries as like allowing us to remain intact. I mean, it's very obvious in some ways, but it's like, yeah. and I mean intact in terms of like, I have my imagination. I have my sense of who I am. I have all of these components yes. that make me me. And I'm able to engage with you from that place. But when my boundaries are off, you know, somatically, it impacts how I show yes. up, how I move or how I'm with other people. I can tell yeah. I've been over my boundary for a long time because I can see the way that it's shaping mm -hmm. when I'm thinking, my mood, how I'm showing up. You know what I mean? I deeply know it. You know, I feel like there's been years in my life now where I was doing like, oh, I'm doing a book tour. I'm doing something that is pushing me past my natural need for quiet and solitude and the slowness with which I actually need to take in human interaction. And what I find happens is I can tell I'm past my boundary when I can no longer drop into my authentic self. And I have another self that seems to be pleasing to people. Uh, That's right. You know, it's not like an inauthentic self. Like it's not mm -hmm. a lie. It's still me, mm -hmm. but it's me with a small, tight smile. And it's me yeah. or like with a constant smile. And I'm like, uh, no one's smiling all the time. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like, so yeah. I find, you know, like I took my sabbatical this year in part because of that, that I was like, I need to drop right back all the way into the me that doesn't have to be on all the time and you know see what turns me on see what excites me about being alive right now see what kind of connections I want that's the other part about boundaries for me is that they allow me to be in touch with what I want to be doing and mm -hmm. offering and when I'm not in touch with them it's very easy to think I should only be doing what other people want me to do I was gonna switch gears but I have one more question I think in this vein which is yeah in taking time to rest, maybe I'm asking this from a mm -hmm. kind of personal standpoint. How did you deal mm -hmm. with deserving, deserving that space, to that rest. whole narrative? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, I feel blessed that I had done sabbatical before. And so even though I couldn't remember it, like in the moment, I didn't really feel like I deserved it. I just knew that I was not going to make it if I didn't take some space. Like I was, I was becoming less of myself each day. And uh, so it was a survival tool, like more than a deserving. It was just like, oh, to survive, I need to take this time. But right. then once I got into it, the deserving part re, re, reasserted itself. Um, and 
what helps me is like, I'm like, oh, everyone deserves this. Like it's not Adrian uniquely is special and she deserves this. But there's something about like, oh, every time I have a break of any sort, I think I want this for everyone, especially every black person I know, especially every organizer I know. Um, because it very quickly puts me back in touch with my purpose. And, you know, this is also for me, a very somatic way of moving through the world is that I can feel when I'm on purpose and I can feel when I'm in a reactive mode Mm -hmm. and that reactive mode can still be effective, but I can feel when I'm not aligned with what I'm on earth to do. And so even if I'm productive during that time, it doesn't satisfy me. What I deserve is to be satisfied because I believe that all black people deserve to be satisfied. I believe that everyone who has lived with oppression, what was stolen from us was our right to be satisfied, our, our knowing of that. And I'm like, if I look around now, that has become such a technology for me is that I, I am, I want to be satisfiable and I want my people to be satisfiable. Like when we seek justice, I want us to know when we have it. For me, I have to know what it feels like, you know, like I know when I'm satisfied, it's very Mm -hmm. liberating to have that technology in me because then when it's not happening, you can't fool me. (laughs) You know, I'm, and Audre Lorde taught us this, right. That once we've experienced that full erotic awakening, that aliveness, deep knowing we cannot settle for self-negation and self-denial. And in a time period where we have been trained for at least 250 years, but I would argue much longer in, in, if you, if you start to break down you know, before enslavement, before some of these systems in place, there was already patriarchy. There was already mm-hmm, mm-hmm. different ways of negating who we were. Um, that there's been a lot of training to keep us from satisfaction. And so it is a political bent, an orientation of mine to reclaim that. And, you know, I wonder sometimes about how far we move in movement without knowing what satisfaction looks like. Adrian? Yeah. Come on. Come through. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though? Because oh, I'm like, yes. this is how we end up. Okay, so just an example of this is I'm like, I think this is how we end up with policies where it's like, well, this policy didn't do anything for us or barely did anything for us. It looked good on paper. It sounded good to our oppressors. Like they got to feel good that they had, you know, given us something, but it didn't actually meet our needs. And I think that happens when we don't have a sense of satisfiability and what we actually need. Then we settle for less and then we still bust our ass to cover the ground that's not covered by this unsatisfying policy. So I really, you know, in this period, this is why I think of myself as a post-nationalist because I'm not sure the American experiment will ever satisfy me. And I'm interested in, you know, who else is like, oh, we know this experiment because of how it was founded, because of these other things will not be satisfying. But here we are inside of it. How do we find satisfaction with each other? How do we buy our own land? How do we practice internal governance with each other? And that's where emergent strategy comes in, is that we are in the shells we're in, we're in the world we're in. 
in this world, how are we practicing liberation such that the next world will have more and more? I'm over here dancing, Adrian. Okay. <laughs> I was like, baby, are you still there? <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. I'm <laughs> dancing because I think that Yay. It's just so rich. It's so good. And it's so instructional. The satisfaction piece, you know, we both teach with Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity, bold, shout out. And yes, Lord. Yes. Good and Lord. one of the things, you know, in teaching yeah. last year, um, we were teaching this piece of work called The Rhythm of Action, which I will not get into, but I was teaching oh, yeah. and I, I, yeah, I was yeah. imparting to folks that life wants to care. Yeah. Life does care. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. life isn't just wanting to just Beautifully. be here and not care. Life wants to care and care wants satisfaction. Yes. And satisfaction right. is achieved in the actions we take. And that's why we have to have boundaries and all these things, but we want, we want to be satisfied. You know, if I long to be yes. close, I want to actually be satisfied by being held by a lover. I want that satisfaction. Yes. And so much of our ability to be satisfied gets co-opted, manipulated by other people, by institutions, Mm -hmm. by systems that say satisfaction isn't real. The only thing that matters is your survival. But you don't actually get the richness Mm -hmm. of your experience, the satisfaction of your experience. So it's just so – it is hard for me to follow those who are not – it's experiencing satisfaction in their lives. Or right. no satisfaction. That's right. I find that like, and it doesn't have to look, you know, like I, I have this thought too a lot that I'm just like, it doesn't have to look like what we were trained to think it would look like, you know, mm-hmm. like I mm-hmm. feel like I grew up on like magazines that were telling me something and, and about how I would be satisfied with my body if my body changed in certain ways. And I would be satisfied with a partner if I you know, sucked on as this and this way or whatever. Like there was just all this stuff that was like, that's actually not intimacy. That's not it. I tried that diet. I tried having my body change in certain ways. I tried it all. I tried it all. And what I found was the most satisfying to me was having space to read and to write and feeling free in my body and deciding to look at my body with the eyes of love. And, um, that satisfied me. And then when it came to love, you know, I had all these ideas about what I needed and then falling in love. I was like, Oh, the thing that's most satisfying is when I choose to trust, like it's really, really Mm. deeply satisfying when I say, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to let you see me. And it's scary, but it's really satisfying when I feel seen like as I am without feeling like I need to change anything. So satisfying that it moves me to tears. Like regularly, I'll just be like looking at someone who I know loves me and just crying as I'm like, you really see me. And like, you're still here wanting to see me. That's wild to me. That's not what I thought was ever going to happen or feel good. (laughs) And then I come into movement spaces and I feel like I find myself wanting that in movement spaces too, is like, well, instead of looking at each other with eyes of correction or eyes of fixing, I've got to fix you. I've got to make you better somehow. I've got to 
teach you what you don't know, which I also didn't know last week. <laughs> you know, there's just this way that we look at each other in movement that is not loving. And I I want to figure out how we return to that. Like you get to be here and be whole here and be loved here. And that requires a lot of accountability. Um, so I'm in that, I'm wrestling with that right now. Like how do I bring love into movement in, in what I have to offer. Um, That's right. And not in a like corny, cheesy way, but in a real like, this is what it will take for us to be satisfied with the future we create. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're almost at time, but a thought just occurred to me and I think I'm just going to say it. Um, say it. Just thinking about like, there's the another side of it in that it has to start to matter to that we've harmed someone because sometimes things escalate because it's, you know, mm-hmm. I say I was harmed by you or, you know, this thing happened. And I think because of the way we've been trained and shaped by punitive systems, we've talked about this, but the we really want to be innocent. And so exactly. we will reject uh, the information we're getting about our own behavior because yes. it disrupts who we want to be or think we are. Yes. And we'll do everything we can to paint the scene that removes any of our kind of culpability or responsibility or accountability exactly. in it. So I think, you know, the other side of the culture shift that's necessary is for it to actually be one, to be kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, safe enough in a way to mm-hmm. care about the impact that you have had on another person, but yeah. also to just have it instilled in us that it matters that we are impacting each other all the time. And then it, it does matter um, when we, in our own unconsciousness or our own unprocessed things, transgress or uh, yeah. cross boundaries or cause harm. That 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 there's also that that shift too um, that just has to really matter. So that's that's what was on my mind. Yeah, I appreciate that, and you know, I feel like it's we also want to be contactable in in that, right? Like I know that my initial response when folks are like, this is causing harm, was just like, oh, you, you must not have read the whole thing <laughs> or uh-huh, you must not right. know me, you know, like obviously yeah. I would never cause harm. So you must be misunderstanding it. That's right. And right, right. just noticing how, how that's, even though I have spent years training myself to be wrong as quickly as I can, that yeah. I know that the sooner I can acknowledge that I might be wrong, the sooner I can get to learning. Um, but it's still so, t- you know, I was so scared to write this piece. I was so scared yeah. to ask these questions. And I was so moved that it felt so understood in these scary areas initially. So it's also like, you know, asking asking me in some ways, like give up this, this small comfort you grab for yourself or whatever. Mm-hmm, and it's just like mm-hmm, moving through mm-hmm. all that and just being like, okay, all of that can still be there. And you, you had some unintentional, you know, that's that int- intention versus impact. It's like you had some unintentional yeah, consequences right. here. And like you actually, you know, the, the blessing of my life right now is I do have this public cachet. I'm like, I can handle this. <laughs> like mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I can handle mm-hmm. this. Like there are a lot of people who, who really understand emergent strategy, really understand pleasure activism, really understand my commitment to complexity and have been held by me in movement space and they know mm-hmm. my heart. So 
I can handle this. Do you know what I mean? And I do. I think that a lot, maybe this can be a last thing that I say, but I, I keep feeling when, you know, when, especially with the, the title of this podcast, Finding Our Way, one of the pieces is that we have to recognize that we're actually not a fragile people. And mm. for myself, it's like a claiming that I'm like, I'm not fake strong. I'm really strong. I really have done a lot of labor of healing myself, of turning and facing who I am, looking at my oppressions and looking at my privileges, looking at my work and looking at my calling. I am strong in that. And if there's something that I have done wrong, I'm strong enough to admit it and to learn. And if there's something else that comes along, I want to be strong enough to change. And my responsibility to my people, and I, in that I mean all of my people, like I mean that at a species level, is to remind us that we are not a fragile people, but that we are an adaptive, resilient, constantly changing species in a constantly changing world. And we are strong enough to change now. And it requires, this, this moment requires us to be strong enough to change and willing to change and even, dare I say, excited to change. And if you're going to be excited to change, then you're going to have to deal with, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. being, being visionary at times, being wrong at times, the mess of it all. So, yeah. That's right. Adrian, that's such a beautiful note to leave us on, a really important offering for us. Um, thank you for being on this podcast. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for doing this. And thanks for thank being for my being friend. I, I bless the like bless whoever deserves it every single day for making you <laughs> and then letting you understand how great it is to be friends with me because I love you so Aww, much. <laughs> I love you so much. I love you so, so much. I love you so much. Ah. Um, and yeah, I'm really grateful you're doing this. And I also think it's just important to uplift like what the space that you're creating with this, I think is going to be one of the most important spaces for the learning we're doing in this time. Like, I'm like, Oh, like what if James Baldwin had had a podcast? So uh, <laughs> that's how I feel about you. That's how I feel about it. I said what I said and I love you. I'm not going to put that in the podcast, but I love you so much. You better. You can't cut. You don't silence me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put it on my post. I love you. I love you too. Thank you. Finding Our Way is co-produced and edited by Eddie Hemphill. Co-production and visual design by Devin Delania. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, and review wherever it is you listen to this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram at Finding Our Way Podcast or email us with questions, suggestions, or feedback at findingourwaypod at gmail.com. You can also help sustain the podcast by becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. You can find us on Patreon at Finding Our Way Podcast. Thank you for listening to Finding Our Way.